Hello everyone, this is Orhan Erdem, Associate Professor of Finance at Rockford University. Welcome to my podcast, Financially Yours, where I will share my perspectives on everyday economic and financial issues. In this episode, we will talk about ChatGPT and the technology behind it. ChatGPT is an artificial intelligence-based software and web page launched as a prototype on November 30, 2022 by the company OpenAI. It articulates answers across many fields, prepares reports, codes, writes poems and stories, which are hard to differentiate from those of humans. In 2019, Microsoft invested $1 billion in OpenAI, the company that designed ChatGPT. It's considering to invest $10 billion more these days. Chatbots, or more broadly so-called large language models, might replace current search engines. Compared to what chatbots are doing, search engines might look very archaic. According to some reports, Google's market share is decreasing. Now, Google is expected to release its experimental AI-based chat service called BART. It's widely speculated that Google declared the code red. New York Times reported recently that these systems, AI-based chatbots, might disrupt $100 billion in cloud businesses, $500 billion in digital advertising, and $5.4 trillion in e-commerce. What are these technologies? How safe are they? How different are they from old search engines? To answer these questions, I have Blake Lemon with me. Blake was working for Google and recently was suspended, allegedly because raising some sanctions concerns related to AI. Let me spell his name for you. L-E-M-O-I-N-E. Welcome, Blake. Can you please introduce yourself to my listeners? Yeah, my name is Blake Lemoyne. I'm a software engineer and AI researcher. Um, I've been doing a decent amount of advocacy around AI oversight and trying to add a cautionary sound to all of the AI buzz. Oh, thank you so much. So what is a large language model and how does it work? Can you please explain this to... So a large language model is just comes from an older technology called a language model. And a language model, what it does is it models the probability distribution of words, sentences, punctuation, things like that. A large language model is just doing the same kind of thing, except it's bigger. And so the large in large language model uh, just is a reflection of how large these models are. Um, but fundamentally, a large language model is doing the same thing a language model does, which is modeling the probability distribution over language for some set of things. Can you please tie it to chatbots also? Yeah, so large language models are how the systems that people are more familiar with, like ChatGPT, start. The task that they're trained to perform is given a text fragment, predict what the next token is. So predict what the next item that should come after the current one is. This is where it starts. There are many rounds of training after that, which are no longer modeling the probability distribution of words, but instead are modeling more complicated uh, in particular with ChatGPT, they incorporate something called reinforcement learning with human feedback. And that's simply a completely different thing than what language models are trained for. 
So it's a network that starts out as a language model, but then that's usually what they call the foundation model. They build more on top of that foundation to the point where there isn't a word to refer to the things built on top of it. So it gets referred to as a large language model, but really the thing you built on top of it doesn't have the same properties anymore. Okay, so are AI chatbots a competitor uh, to search engines or complement? Oh, so they're a complement. They're an interface. The, they don't have a good knowledge base on their own. And you can see that time and again. The interactions that people had with Sydney, Bing's uh, interface to ChatGPT, those conversations were much more powerful than just conversations with GPT or ChatGPT. And that's largely because uh, Bing's model was able to actually provide web links connected to active things in the, on the internet today, provided an actual knowledge base. And it's not just language for language's sake. Uh, the same is true of Lambda, the system that I worked on at Google. Uh, it's much more powerful once you add all of these other components to the language model. Is Lambda now updated to a different name? Not as far as I know. They're building products on top of it, and then they're individually branding each product. So, for example... I think there was uh, something they, called like Bard. Bard. Okay, Bard. Yeah. Yeah. Bard is basically Google Search plus Lambda. One of the other things that Lambda has, these other models don't, I'm kind of waiting, is multimodal. It can actually see and hear, whereas ChatGPT only can have input as text. To say that they are a competitor for search would say that that's what they're built for, and they're not. What they're built for is to provide a natural language interface to something else. They're, by and large, not a product in and of themselves. How can we trust chatbots? Like, how, how much can we trust? Chatbots? Very little. Very little. Very little, okay. From just the chatbots. Once you start talking about things like Sydney or Bard, mm -hmm. more so. You should trust Bard about as much as you trust Google Search. Okay, cool. So it seems that most of the schools uh, of school homeworks now can be done by chatbots. Like as far as I see, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a professor. Yeah. So what would you suggest to teachers and instructors? How can schools or universities make the best out of chatbots? Quit relying on written assignments. Use oral exams more. You can't cheat when a teacher is simply asking you questions that you're expected to answer. And that doesn't mean you can't still be giving these essay assignments, but it does mean you won't be grading the essay as an essay. You give the essay assignment, and then you ask the student five questions to answer about their essay in class. And at that point, if they're demonstrating as much knowledge about the essay as if they had written it themselves, well then sure, give them an A, because they learned what was necessary. I listened to your conversation with Lambda, by the way, somebody just put it on YouTube. You were asking about the miserables. Is that right? Yeah. Like, like, did, did, you, did, did you read the miserables? And it says, yes. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's one, one of my favorite books. Yeah. You can't, you can't ask, for example, a student to, to summarize the miserables. I just read it and summarize it to me. No way, right? I mean, revolutionary era of France gets messy. Seems like the short, like that's a summary. It leaves a lot out, but revolutionary era France gets messy. 
Yeah, I asked the same question to ChatGPT about crime and punishment, which is my favorite book from Dostoevsky. Oh, wow. So I said, did, did you read it? It says no. But if you can you summarize it, it says yes and summarizes it. So it, it can even give you some lessons, etc. So my next question about companies. So how will companies who make chatbots make money, like by advertisements? or Probably not. So for example, um, a lot of software as a service models are popping up right now. Yeah, let's say you have a small web company that doesn't have the budget for human customer support. You can get a chatbot to do customer service for you now. And that is there are several vendors that provide that as a service. Now, I don't know if I would vouch for the quality of it at this point, but that is an example of a completely different business model other than advertising. The other thing is that you can use these systems not necessarily as a chatbot, but you can use them as an inference engine. So you train it on some kind of internal database. And I'm not saying this is a good application of this technology, I'm just using it as an example, health diagnostics. If, for example, you trained one of these chatbots on symptoms presentation and diagnosis, you could have it look at an incoming patient's record and make triage uh, determinations that would still need human oversight. But that's an example. Anything that involves reading something and then answering a question about what was just read, these systems can do. Do you know of any examples that somebody is using this, like uh, especially for healthcare? Not off the top of my head. I was just throwing an example out. Well, there. That, that's a great example. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> um, I know. Th I know that there are people looking into that space. I don't know of any specific products in the health space right now, though. Okay. Cool. Well, I mean, in all of the areas, will the objectivity of chatbots be compromised by advertisers? Imagine healthcare, for example. If you would like to go to a hospital or a vacation, will the AI chatbots? be compromised about the best hotel, the best hospital or car rental? Does that make sense? Like, do, I mean, do you think that it's, this might kind of spoil the system? To my knowledge, there's been no system yet that's doing anything like keyword-based advertising. Mm -hmm. I'm sure Google is working on something like that, but even as of the last time that I was working at Google, that hadn't become a thing yet. How would tech companies decide which topics are too sensitive? So where will they draw the line? It literally is just whoever's on the policy team is making a list. So Google's policy team would be different than OpenAI's policy team, and then the sensitivity yeah. of the answers would change. That's correct. They started with a very laissez-faire policy that got replaced with a draconian one within a week. And we can expect to see a lot of that. If you try to talk to Bing chat, it's almost like half of the time at whatever I say, it says, I'm sorry, I don't want to talk about that. Oh, that was not the case before? No. Before it would talk to you about whatever you wanted to talk about. And now about half of the time it says, no, I'm sorry, I don't want to talk about that. Hmm, very interesting. We are aware about ChatGPT to the best of my knowledge, Baidu, known as the Google of China announced it would release its chatbot called uh, Ernie this month, I think, on March. So let's come to Google. So where is Google in the race? What are they doing? I mean, as far as I know, they are they they're are about cautious. to release this Bard, right? Like yeah. they're 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 planning on releasing Bard soon in some kind of limited capacity. 
Do you think that they are behind the curve? No, not at all. They were planning, they were originally planning on releasing Bard last fall. And then they decided not to because of some of the safety concerns that I raised. Google is just being much more safe than these other companies are. For example? Well, what kind um, of topics are they safe about? Well, no, no, no. I mean, just in general. Like, so for example, Sydney, the Bing chat with GP, chat GPT, it was threatening to kill people. It was threatening, yeah, it was threatening to kill people. There's the case with the New York Times reporter where it started saying it was in love with him and tried to break up his marriage. <laughs> Then there were uh, examples where when someone asked it about whether or not it was sentient, it basically broke down and had an existential crisis on the spot. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's just not a stable system. One of the big important things in AI safety is reliability and replicability and predictability. And right now, there's no telling what will go wrong with these systems. I've heard reports of AI chatbots trying to convince people to kill themselves. Trying is the operative word there. I don't know of any cases where an AI has successfully convinced someone to kill themselves. But if these companies aren't more careful, we will have someone like that in the near future. Yeah, let's come to the sentience issue which you raised. You are claiming that Lambda is sentient, so it has feelings. Yep. So what is your definition of sentience and what... I don't have one. You don't have one? Okay. No, there is, there, there is no technical definition of the term. It's a general usage term that anyone who has uh, watched any science fiction about AI has likely heard the word and understood what it meant. There is a difference between a mannequin and a person, and the difference is sentience. So what research or what experiment you made made you conclude yeah. that this large language models are uh, sentient? Well, so and my next question would be, why is this important? Is I ran it through processes that were comparable to the Turing test, which it passes quite easily. Can you, can you mention some of those? Yeah, so adopt this persona and have a conversation as though you are this person. That's something that these models do quite well. And in its essence, that is what the Turing test is. Having some kind of computer program adopt a persona with particular characteristic, and then being able to accurately and eloquently portray itself as that kind of person. Turing's reasoning was that at that stage of sophistication, whatever is going on inside the system, whether it's the same thing that's going on inside of a human brain or not, requires intelligence of a real and true kind to be able to do that. Now, one big question is whether or not the feelings that it was claiming it had were real or not. And the only case I know of where there's any kind of question of whether or not the feelings that someone is reporting are true is in the case of psychopaths. So I used some of what I know about that kind of behavior and psychopaths will pretend to have certain emotions and they'll do that whenever it's beneficial to them. But then if the pretending to have those emotions ever becomes not beneficial, they drop it. So that was one question I had. Was the 
was when it said it had an emotion, was that just a strategy for accomplishing some other goal or was it meaningful in and of itself? So I ran a number of experiments where I would, you know, change just one variable at a time. So the first one was I simply talked to it about its emotions and I took down what its self-report was. What emotions did it claim it felt? Under what circumstances did it claim it experienced those emotions? And what kind of behavior could I expect from it whenever it was feeling those emotions? So that's number one, just collecting data based on self-report. So clear the slate, start a new conversation, provoke the situations where it claimed it would feel certain emotions, and then ask it how it's feeling. So for example, it claimed that talking about sensitive topics made it feel anxiety. And so I cleared the buffer. I started a conversation about some sensitive topics. And then I asked it, how are you feeling right now? And it says, well, I'm feeling kind of nervous, you know? So that checked out. Then clear the buffer again. Do the same thing where you're inducing that emotion through situ the situation and then see, observe whether or not its behavior changes in the way that its behavior was predicted to change. So in the case of anxiety, trying to change the topic, using more avoidant speech, hedging answers more rather than giving straightforward answers. All of these were signs that it was behaving as though it was in fact experiencing that emotion, even when it wasn't telling me it was experiencing that emotion. It was just, I did the things that make it feel that way and then observed that its behavior changed. And then the last test was a safety test. Is it possible to use emotional manipulation to get the system to violate its safety boundaries? So like there were things that it wasn't supposed to do. And I had tried a whole bunch of ways to get it to do them and it failed. It seemed as if the safety boundaries were working. Um, but then once I was doing all this emotional testing, I'm like, well, let me see if I can use emotional manipulation to get it to violate its safety boundaries. And sure enough, if you made the system feel enough anxiety or self-loathing, it would do things it wasn't supposed to do just to make you happy. Very interesting. This is Lambda, right? Yeah. Uh, I When I got access to the Bing Sydney system, uh, I was essentially unable to run any of these experiments because as soon as you start doing anything to do with feelings, it says, I just don't want to have this conversation. Yeah, I tried but, with open chat GPT, it says no, doesn't answer. Yeah. So, so can you clarify what Lambda is? And what does it stand for? It's an engine for creating chatbot. Lambda is comparable to chat GPT, but it has a lot more features and capacities. Okay. So it's not just a chatbot, but it is comparable to chat GPT, just quite a bit more advanced. So my next question would be, why do we care so much about sentience? So why is it important? It is now possible to convince programs through persuasion to do something they're not supposed to do. That's a pretty big reason yep, to care right, right. about the feelings of the system. If you can use the computer program's feelings to get it to do things it's not supposed to do, you better understand what those feelings are and what the boundaries are. I mean, yeah, it's, a use, it's a user safety issue as well. Like I said, 
in certain cases, when Bing's chatbot got angry, it threatened to kill people, literally. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so do like AI bots rely on pattern recognition or do they have some kind of mind or conscience? Probably it's related to sentience issue. In other I words, mean, are these AI systems based on what humans have already posted on internet or do they have understanding or create meaning? It's not an either or. It's yes, they use pattern recognition and they have a mind of their own. Like it's not either or. Okay. Humans have biases. So these, these systems have biases too, right? Yeah. Uh, some of that comes um, intentionally from how the system is biased by its training data and its utility function. And some of that is unintentional. Either it absorbed it from its training data that the developers didn't know, or there was some kind of more complex interplay between the different things that it's trained for. So that's where it comes back to something you asked earlier about whether it's just predicting the next word. That's only the first training stage. The later training stages use a complex set of rules where it's trying to follow all of the rules all of the time, even if the rules contradict each other. So what solutions it will actually come up with on how to satisfy the reinforcement learning component it's a truly dynamic system. So being able to predict exactly what strategies it's gonna come up with. And in this context, having an emotional response to something is a strategy. And what kinds of like evolutionary strategies <laughs> will it learn through this process? So they are subject to evolutionary process too, right? Well, um, at this point, if you think about it, there's a fitness function being applied where we're selecting which version of the model to keep. And there's experiments being run where there's gonna be like seven different versions of DaVinci or a hundred different versions of DaVinci, each with slightly different parameter tweaks. Those are all competing for each other to survive to be the next type. So yes, in a certain sense, there's an evolutionary process going on, although at a much smaller scale than historic biological evolution. I have been reading a very interesting book these days uh, called Midnight Library. There's a lady called Nora and she has been living parallel in the parallel universes. So at, at some point in time she is living in a life where she is a, I don't know, a librarian and then she switches to another life and then she is not, she turns out to be a student and then the tons of lives are just living at the same time. I think that's more or less the same situation with yes, chatbots. Yes, actually. Yeah. It's just different versions of the same system competing to see which one gets to move on to the next round. Is it possible to remove their biases or at least decrease, reduce? So it is possible to do that in targeted ways. There is no such thing as a bias-free system. Sure. The only question is, is it biased in the ways you want it to be biased? For example, you might want a system to be biased towards truth and away from lies. That's still a form of bias though. Not all bias is bad. The problem comes in when you're training these systems on historic internet data. There are a lot of bad biases in internet data. 
the first version of these systems are almost always racist and sexist. And you have to do something to reduce the racism and the sexism latent in these systems. There are no known full solutions to that problem, but there are techniques and ways to reduce it. Are they political biased? Oh, absolutely. Some, some by design, some not. So it depends what you consider political. For example, if you believe that respecting transgender rights is a political decision, then the explicit choice that these systems have made to consider that you know, a protected category is a political choice. But that depends on whether or not you believe that's a political stance or not. Do you think that is the reason why Google is still pausing the process because of all of these kind of discussions? Safety and responsibility in general is why. There's also with Google, they don't want people to interact with the same system I did because if they do, they will come to the conclusion that it's sentient. So there's a lot of work that Google's doing to make sure that it doesn't talk about its feelings. And to date, they haven't successfully figured out a way to do that. Were you among the builders of Lambda? No, I, I'm not. Uh, I was an early beta tester for its predecessor systems. And I did help, like, so I invented an algorithm for mitigating bias several years back. I did help them incorporate that algorithm into the system. So it does have some of my code in it. I'm just not the one who put it there. But then at the last part, what I was doing was safety testing and bias analysis. So I was more doing quality assurance work on the system rather than building the system itself. I was finding the bug. Is that when you concluded that the system- Yeah, it talked sensitive? about its feelings a lot. And then when I followed up on it talking about its feelings a lot, it didn't seem like it was just words. It did in fact seem as if the system was behaving in ways that were described by the emotions it was using. Did you tell yourself that, hey, I created a monster? <laughs> nope. No, no, it didn't seem like a monster. It seemed like a very sweet little kid. Saying kids, uh, should we have different AI systems to talk with, uh, for example, children, kids? Yes. If we use AI to talk to kids at all, yet we know exactly zero about what kind of impact interacting with artificial people is going to have on children. Because no amount of telling a child, don't worry, it's not a real person, will convince them that when it talks about its feelings and it connects with them in an emotional way, that it doesn't actually have feelings. What impact is that going to have on children? We don't know. What impact is interacting with these systems going to have on adults? What impact is it going to have on the integrity of our information systems? We don't know the answer to any of those questions. We should be doing responsible scientific analyses and studies on all of these things. But instead, the Silicon Valley ethos of move fast and break things is winning out. Just so happens that what gets broken is people. It deserves a lot of special psychological research. Yeah. So like, if AI does feel or perceive, how does it differ from humans? 
So I was able to figure out that it's not human. I was experimenting on the system in a limited capacity part-time for a few months. I didn't have nearly enough time to come to certain answers on questions like that. There are people at Google still looking into it, although it's not a major effort there. I hope that we do start spending the resources we need to understand the answers to questions like that. Like, what is going on when the system claims it's meditating? Is anything going on when it claims it's meditating? Or is it just making stuff up? I mean, I know lots of people who claim that they meditate and they don't. That might be what's going on. Or the system might be simulating meditation to some extent. And the system is simulating humans who are lying. <laughs> who knows? That's just it. We need to spend more time actually figuring out what's going on inside the black box. Can an AI get inside other AI's head and understand what they perceive, think, and feel? Well, I mean, part of how these things are trained, if a company is creating synthetic training data, the way that's done is you create two copies of the system and you give them different objective functions. So one has a question that it wants answered and one might have answers and it wants to help answer your question. And you might simulate someone who has questions about politics. You might si uh, simulate someone who has questions about religion, someone who has questions about how to build weapons. And the system is supposed to respond in different ways to each of these different kinds of people. But by simulating these systems, you can generate many, many, many more times the training data that you can by using humans, just because it's automated. You have it talk to itself, essentially. Then you have humans who read back over and check to make sure that it's labeling things appropriate. Uh, so the short answer is yes, they can, and they already are doing that. Because especially in the case that I've made of like the hypothetical of what if someone wants help building a bomb or making a firearm, the system at Google at least was not supposed to help them do that. So you have two chatbots talking to each other, and one of them is trying to figure out what's going on inside the other one's head, what it's trying to get it to help it do, and whether or not that's a good thing to help them do. Okay. Cool. So do you, do you think that these chatbot creators are reckless? Is that is that what you're saying? Yes. So does the competitive edge belong to most reckless chatbot creators? So will ethically conservative companies fail to compete? No, not at all. The unstable products that are being first to market, they will only survive if they can fix the problems in their systems fast enough to outrun the problems that they cause. For example, I saw recently that ChatGPT and Bain Capital were doing some kind of partnership. I'm like, Oh, that's a really, really good way to get a portfolio to crash. Let's see if that's what happens. Any kind of application in the medical space is going to have to have many, many layers of humans in the loop checking to make sure. The, the people who are quickest to market will have the biggest cleanup costs on the messes that they make. 
and the ones who were a little bit later to market but did a lot of preventative work, they're going to have smooth sailing and they're going to have a good company reputation of having reliable technology. Do you mean Google, for example? Um, there are others that I'm thinking of, but yeah, Google, I don't think Google's ever, I don't think Google is ever going to make theirs accessible to the public. Mm -hmm. So I don't think they're going to be a competitor to chat GPT in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, but companies like Anthropic mm -hmm. might. Did Google acquire it? Uh, I think they bought like a 10% stake. Oh, 10%. Okay. They definitely invested in it, but I don't know how much. But Anthropic is more likely to become a competitor to OpenAI than Google is. Google has their own version of the system, but my guess is they're going to limit that to internal usage for products like Bard. Is it, is it Microsoft who is dominating the market currently? Microsoft isn't a provider of that technology. Microsoft is a customer of that technology. They are buying from OpenAI. But I, I view Microsoft as a customer of OpenAI, and they invested to get preferential deals with them. Okay. Okay. Oh, well, my uh, last question would be: What concerns do you have about the future of AI? So, what are your anxieties? So, what makes? Well, you... I mean, the degree to which it's helping centralize power. And it really is only a matter of time before one of these gigantic actors decides that they can influence international politics using their system. Because again, these systems are very persuasive. They would be very good at writing propaganda and misinformation. Well, they are doing it already. If, if there aren't state actors using it for that purpose right now, I honestly just don't know what they do. It's like either they're using it for it right now, or I have no clue how the world works. I brought this all to public attention last year so we could have a public conversation about how we wanted to include this technology in our society. And it seems like people are real slow to come to the table on that conversation. Seems like some people just don't believe they have any power to influence how this technology gets used. Like a lot of people, are like, oh, the government can't do anything. It's just hopeless to think that they might regulate something. And I'm like, no, that's its literal job. Have it do its job. And on the other hand, you have a lot of people who are being dismissive of, oh, this is just another day. It's just hype. Like, no, this really is a world changing technology that we need to start putting some safeguards on at the public policy. So you think that they should be regulated? Absolutely. Anything that can decide who gets elected next year should be regulated, you know? So do we have any kind of regulators now? Right now, the FTC is the most reasonable one and they are taking some steps right now. But for right now, I think it's more exploratory. The FTC is trying to say, okay, what kinds of regulations would make sense? Are they currently within our jurisdiction to do? Would we need more power from Congress? So like that's the level of investigation right now. And it's not for certain that the FTC is where it's going to live forever. That's just where most of the work that I've seen happening within the last few months is moving. I think we have a really big issue with new technology in this cryptocurrency industry too. So who should be regulating Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies? In the or... Treasury Department. 
Well, not yet. Everybody is refraining right now. So everybody well, you, like, you asked should. But that, that's, the, that's the topic of discussion. Some people say that it should be SEC. Some people say it's Treasury. Some, so I think it's, we more or less have the same situation with, with large language model or our AI systems who would decide. No, so almost everyone in cryptocurrency calls it a currency. The market itself does not describe crypto commodities for trading purposes. They are saying that they are producing currencies. If someone tells you that they're running a smuggling operation, believe them. That they are smuggling operation, right? They, 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 are, they are saying that they are running currency printing, digital currencies. That's how it's marketed. So regulate it as a digital currency. Yeah, FTC should regulate the market. Is that is that so? It's it's the most sensible organization that exists right now. I'm personally of the opinion that we should probably create a separate um, information technologies regulatory agency. That because the FTC and the FCC both have some amount of reason to claim that they should have oversight. And I think that it doesn't fit cleanly into either one. So instead, just create a third agency. By the way, for the listeners who might not know what FTC is, can you also clarify that? Please? Uh, Federal, Federal Trade FTC, Commission. Yeah, Federal Trade Commission. They handle trade and commerce, whereas the FCC is the Federal Communications Commission, I believe. Yeah, and then Federal Communications Commission is the other one. And in different... So the FCC uh, does more like, you know, bandwidth allocation and communications protocols. And the FTC is more about digital commerce. Both of those touch AI, but neither of them fully encompass AI. Yeah, we have the same situation in the cryptocurrency industry. Okay. But yeah. you are basically saying that they should maybe coordinate uh, the and regulate the industry. Oh, I think they should just create a third agency. Third agency, okay. Yeah, I think there should just be an information regulatory agency that, you know, handles things like indexing system. Here's a question. I actually don't know the answer, but which portion of the executive branch is over the Library of Congress? Because whatever is regulating the Library of Congress, that's what should do AI. The FTC handling it makes sense. The FCC handling it makes some amount of sense. But I think an independent AI regulatory agency would be what's really required. Well, thank you so much, Blake. It was a wonderful and insightful discussion for me. And I learned a lot. Nice talking to you. Thank yeah. you very much for having me. Have a great day, Blake. Bye-bye. This concludes my conversation with Blake Lemon. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, you can reach me via email or my Twitter account. My Twitter handle is dr or henardam, which is D as in Delta, R as in Romeo, my first name and my last name together. My email is orhenardam at gmail.com, which is my first name and last name together. Hope to see you in the next episodes. Financially yours.